Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. <clears throat> you know, I just got to tell you something private here for a second. So through the years, <clears throat> I've been asked, been interviewed about, you know, why did you plant a church? Why did you plant Adventure the way you planted Adventure? And so I've given a lot of the normal answers that my job requires me to give. I want to see people come to Christ, you know, lost say, blah, 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 and all that. And it's all true. Believe me, it is absolutely all, all true. <clears throat> but one of my driving motivations was to create a church where my kids, who at the time we started were in the fourth and fifth grade, a place where my kids would be proud to go to church and a place where my kids would enjoy going to church and a place where my kids wouldn't hesitate to invite their friends to go to church. That's what I was after. And uh, so, you know, you always wonder how you're doing. And I, today there are going to be several kids that used to spend the night in my house years ago on Saturday night so they could come to church with us for setup and teardown on Sunday mornings. And they're here today. But the big thing is, is uh, this past Tuesday, I got to see my oldest granddaughter baptized. Yep. So it's pretty cool. So I feel like so far we're on track. She loves her church. We, got, got her, uh, we baptized her out at the church lake. And it was pretty cool. So, you know, if, <clears throat> if I were to summarize adventure in two words... They'd be changed lives. I mean, we've been about changed lives from day one. Never been about, never been about buildings. In fact, I hate owning buildings. Um, we've never been about bigness. We've never been about money. We've been about changed lives just one life at a time, just over and over. And that's what we've done from the very beginning. And when we talk about change... Well, I want to do a brief series for you called Changing from the Inside Out, because when change is forced on you from the outside in, the moment the force is gone, what do you do? You go right back to whatever you did before. And so it's essential that change comes from the inside. God uses a change process, and you see it over and over in Scripture, and you see it over and over in the lives of the people around you. And I want to talk to you about it today, and, and here's why. Have, you, have any of you, you'll show your age have any of you had a stress test? <clears throat> I remember when they told me that, I said, I do not need a test to tell you that I have stress. And they're like, it's not that kind of a stress. So I remember when I went in, I was kind of nervous about it because I've heard stories about stress tests and all that. And since I'd had my knee operated on, I couldn't do the walking part of it for the first test. And so they said, we're going to give you the chemical one. And I'm like, okay. And I've heard stories about the chemical one. And so uh, I told him, I said, okay, I'm okay with this. And I sat down in the chair, and they said, do you have any questions? And I just thought, they've never met me before, apparently. So I said, yeah, I want to know step by step what's going to happen and how long it's going to take. How long am I going to be here? And they're like, what, well, do you have somewhere to be today? And I said, no, I just have stress. 
So tell me what's going to happen. So they told me we're going to put this IV in. We're going to take pictures of your heart. We're going to take you down, put, take a picture of your heart. We're going to bring you back. We're going to give you a shot. This is the part I want to hear about. We're going to give you, through your IV, a drug that's going to make your heart race. And you're going to feel it. And from the moment we put it into you, I said, well, they said, we'll put it into you. And I said, how long will that take to kick in? And she said, 15 to 30 seconds. And I said, okay. And she goes, now you may get nauseous. And I said, back up. How long will that take? (laughs) And she said, it'll go that way for about a minute. We'll see what kind of readings we're getting. We'll go about a minute. And I said, okay. And she goes, it should stop at about a minute. And I said, okay. And she said, if it doesn't stop in a minute, we're going to have you drink this Coke. And I thought, they're trying to kill me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And I said, why? And she said, because caffeine will counteract it within 30 seconds or so. So I'm like, (laughs) I got it ready to go. And she said, then we're going to take you down. We're going to take some more pictures of your heart. And we're going to bring you back here. And you're going to sit for a little bit. I thought, okay. So I'll tell you what. The, that, that chick was on the money. They started pushing that stuff into me, and it took about 15 seconds, and I could feel my heart start to really go. And I started feeling really nauseous, so I reached over, and I grabbed the bucket, laid it in my lap, and I watched the clock. (laughs) And you're laying there, and literally, I'm just telling myself, I just got to not cooperate with puking for 42 more seconds, 40 more seconds, 38 more seconds, slowest minute in forever. And uh, finally, when it hit, when it hit zero, I looked at her and said, may I have the pop? And she said, yeah. <laughs> and I knocked it back and it was over in about 15 seconds. Listen, when you know what's happening, it's easier to bear with it when you know what's going to end, right? God's change process is that predictable. And so I want to talk to you about understanding where you are in that change process. All right, so let's look at this process. If you can cooperate with the process, a whole bunch of your life's going to get easier, not real easy, <laughs> easier, and you're going to have a better feel for what's coming next. All right, so number one, first phase is the crisis phase. This is almost universally that first phase when God is working a change in your life. In fact, if you're here today and you're thinking, my life is in crisis right now, congratulations, you're at step one. Now you know what's going on, (laughs) all right? You know to cooperate. God is preparing you to have a change in your life that you need to have. See, your biggest struggle in life is not your physical struggle, It's not your finances, it's not your career, it's not your past. The biggest struggle you have in your life is with God's authority. As a rule, down to a human being, we resist God's authority. And we fight it on every level. We don't want someone to have power over us. Can I suggest to you that the entire abortion battle ultimately is not about babies? It's not about babies. It's not. I mean, in all, honestly, Planned Parenthood's own report, Gutsmacher Report, shows that out of all the abortions that they do, 1% 
um, are attributed to rape and uh, half of 1% are attributed to incest. So that still leaves 98.5% of all abortions are not about the arguments everyone wants to make for why abortion shouldn't be allowed. What it really comes down to is whether or not you can have sex outside of marriage with anyone you want to have it with. God said no, and we're like, nobody's telling me no. That's what it ultimately comes down to. Literally, that's what it comes down to. In the box there, a crisis is the inevitable result of our struggle to usurp God's place for ourselves. We want to be in control. We want to be the masters of our own destiny. For crying out loud, we're Americans. Right? We're individualists. Now, in Genesis 32, we're going to find a story there of a guy who was constantly at odds with himself, constantly fighting God's authority, constantly actually fighting any authority he perceived, real or imagined. And he was always at odds with himself. He was at odds with others. And he ends up in this supernatural wrestling match. Let me tell you, you think WWE has drama? Watch this. Genesis chapter 32. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. Let's stop. Okay. Number one, God does not approve of two wives. You know why? Because God has a brain. All right. God does not approve of two wives. But what Scripture does is Scripture shows even the sins of his people. <laughs> Scripture's honest. It doesn't try to hide what sins people committed. Yeah, the foolishness they did, it's all there. So God didn't approve of this. God made it for one man and one woman, period. But you really need the rest of this backstory to appreciate this. So... Going back, G Jacob is on the run because he had cheated his twin brother Esau out of his inheritance by dressing up like Esau. Apparently, Esau was really hairy. And so there was a time where dad was going to do his blessing and say, you're inheriting all this stuff. And dad is old. Dad's got macular degeneration or cataracts or something, so he can't see so Esau, who's this apparently really hairy guy, is supposed to come in and receive a blessing. So Jacob kills a lamb and puts the wool on his arms <clears throat> and goes in and says, okay, dad, I'm ready for my blessing. And his dad is like, wait, is that you? He's like, yeah, I feel my arms. Okay, so that's, that's what happened. So he pulled a switcheroo. So dad gave Jacob Esau's inheritance because Esau was the firstborn and Jacob was not. So this ticked off Esau who said, I'm going to kill you, you little runt. So Jacob's on the run. All right, so Jacob's on the run his whole life. So now Jacob is about 78 years of age, still on the run. He met a guy named Laban who was, he hit it off with Laban because they were very similar. Laban had two 23-year-old twin daughters. Leah was the older one. Rachel's the younger one. Jacob falls in love with Rachel. And he asks for her hand in marriage, admittedly just mildly creepy for us today. 78 years old proposing to a 23-year-old. <laughs> okay. 
very much, it's like an episode of Springer, you know? You just keep wanting to turn the channel, but you can't. You have to keep watching. You can't believe this is happening. So Lacob agrees, okay, you can marry Rachel, but you got to work with me for seven years first to earn her. So Jacob settles in on the farm, and he works for Laban for seven years. And Scripture says he was so in love with Rachel that it passed like it was a day long. So he worked. The wedding day comes. Uh, they bring out the bride. She's custom, you know, she's dressed as their custom. She's covered in veils, and she's in ceremonial dress. And so they take off, and they go to their honeymoon, I don't know, yurt, whatever, tent. So they take off, and they go to their place. We're going to spend their honeymoon night. And uh, marrying the younger one was a little problematic in that culture because the culture traditions was you marry daughters in the order that they are born. First one goes first, second one goes next, blah, blah, blah. All right. Even if the older one is only a few minutes older. So this next part is really important. It's probably going to make every man in here cringe and fear for his life. In the morning light, Jacob realized that Laban had pulled a switcheroo on him and married him to Leah. In the morning. Okay. Some of you are looking at me like we don't understand. I don't know what else to do. There's short people in here. Um, <clears throat> so, mind you now, he's 84 years of age, so you could blame it on his eyesight. Okay, so, Jacob protested, which made a real fan out of Leah. <laughs> All right? Um, so, he agreed to work another seven years for Rachel. So now Jacob is about 92. Jacob was, they're still in that time frame where people could live pretty long. Jacob lived about 150-ish. Um, so Jacob would have now been 92. Rachel would have been about 37 when they finally married. Now Leah is miffed about his favoritism for her little sister, who, Leah would have me add, looks just like her. <laughs> They're twins. <laughs> but she wasn't good enough. So, because they're 37, baby bear in time is closed up fast. <laughs> Leah decides the way to make him love me more is to have more kids. Well, she couldn't have more kids. So, she gave him two of her young maidservants to make babies with. And then under law, those babies belong to her. So her thought is, if I can get more babies for him, he'll love me more than he loves Rachel. All right. See what I'm talking about? Talk about drama? Okay. Yeah, it's gross. Okay. Genesis 32 again. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives... His 11 sons, two from Rachel, six from Leah, and two from each of the maidservants that Leah gave him, and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all of his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. By the way, he sent them across the river to meet up with Esau to see if Esau will not kill him. So this grudge thing has gone on a long time. 
This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. So this is a long match from just after sunset till just before sunrise. When the man saw that he would not win the match, underline this to the end, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Like I know any 90 plus year olds that walk normal anyhow, all right? But keep that in mind. Now this text doesn't tell us who Jacob was wrestling doesn't tell us who Jacob thought he was wrestling. But a few years later, Hosea would tell us this, and the prophet Hosea would tell us in Hosea 12. What? Here you go. Even in the womb, Jacob struggled with his brother. And all the men are going, how in the world would you do that? And any woman who's ever had a baby is like, let me tell you. <laughs> so this was apparently a violent pregnancy inside. I remember Steph saying, I cannot wait till, this was for Josh, I cannot wait till he's born. He's rubbing his head on my bladder and in my ribs. And I'm like, how do you know that? And she's like, I'll tell you. <laughs> so I believed her because I enjoyed living. Um, you don't tick off a pregnant woman. Even in the womb, Jacob struggled with his brother. So when Esau was born, so Esau's head pops out of the birth canal, and Esau's coming out, and his feet finally trail out. Guess what's happening to his feet? There's an arm sticking out the birth canal, and it has a death grip on one of the feet. Introduction to Jacob. <laughs> now, for those of you who love trivia, there's a pun in this story. The Hebrew word for Jacob is Jacob. The Hebrew word for wrestling is Yabek. The Hebrew name for God is Yahweh. And the Hebrew name for the river Jabek is Yabek. So, Yaakob, Yabek, Yahweh, Yabek. <laughs> because God is funnier than you think. All right. So, all of Jacob's life, he has struggled against others. But his biggest struggle in all of his life was his battle against God's authority, against someone else telling him what he had to do. And I can tell you this about your crisis without knowing what it is. It's always going to boil down to two things. Will I trust God in this situation? Will I obey God in this situation? That's what it always comes down to. There's no variation of it. You know, we've said it many times here at Adventure since we started. God loves you just the way you are, but he also loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He wants to help you grow. He knew who he made you to be, and you're not there yet. And so his work in your life is to make you to your potential. He wants you to become who he created you to be, but we won't do it on our own. So he allows a crisis to come in. Why? Because we rarely change Next box. We rarely change until the pain we feel exceeds our fear of change. We don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. The crisis provides the heat to go, I think I need to move. All right, so if you're in the crisis phase, congratulations. Let me tell you how to get to the next one because you want to make some progress. Believe me, God will leave you in the crisis phase as long as you want to sit there. But if you want to get out of it, here's the next one. Number two, the commitment phase. So this WWE match has been going on for hours at this point. Genesis 32, 26. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, 
I will not let you go unless you bless me. I don't know who he thought he was wrestling, but he figured out he was wrestling somebody who was supernatural. And so he demands of this supernatural person, I'll stop when you give me a blessing and quit. Obviously, God could have squashed him. So why let that struggle go on that long? I think here's the lesson. When God allows a crisis into your life, he doesn't solve it immediately. He lets it go on for a while. Why? So you can make a choice as to whether or not you're really going to commit to the change. He lets you run it out. He wants to see whether or not you're going to trust him in it. Problem is, we make demands of God, and we want an answer right now, and we want the answer we ask for, not the answer that's best. I was at uh, West Kimberly Walmart one time, and I was over in that toy section over there looking for something for the grands. And uh, as I'm over there, I watch about probably a four-year-old boy screaming at his mom. And he is screaming, and he's trying to reach around her from the cart, and she is blocking him. And he's, I don't know what he wanted. He's screaming about something that he wanted there, and it just wouldn't stop. And, you know, and if you let your kids do that in a crowded store, yes, the rest of us think very highly of you. Um, and so eventually she gave in, and she got and handed it to him. He looked at it for about 60 seconds, threw it down, and started grabbing for something else. Brat. Bad parenting. You're going, well, that's not fair of you to say that. Bad parenting. Ask any other parent in here. Bad parenting. You know what? If God gave us everything we wanted every time we asked for it, we'd be like that brat. We would. We'd be spiritual brats. That's what we would do. We would continually go on more and more and try to reach around God and not let God do what God needs to do. Listen, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I'm just praying I am just praying for a financial miracle. And my question I'm, I'm asking in my head is, did you get into this financial crisis um, supernaturally? No. You were very consistent. Very consistent. Very persistent. Some of the be- one of the best things some of you could do is take Amazon off your phone. It's too easy. No, you worked at it. You made consistently poor financial decisions. You're praying for a miracle when what you ought to be praying for is that God will teach you self-discipline. Why should God bail you out? Listen, in the last housing crisis, I'm saying that, meaning not the one that is about to come on us. <laughs> in the last housing crisis... of the homeowners that were bailed out were in foreclosure again within 12 months. Listen, God wants to change your patterns and build your character. He wants to teach you maturity, not erase your mistakes. Galatians chapter 6, watch this. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest what? Decay and death. 
from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. Listen, that's not the best translation they could have given us. The better translation of that word good is virtuous or holy. Let us continue on, right? Doing what is holy. Then at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So are you struggling through the crisis right now? Hang in there. Are you willing to make a commitment to responding to God in the crisis? Then you're ready to go to the next phase. All right, phase three. And I'm going to tell you straight up, this, this phase, the confession phase, this may be the toughest phase for some of us. I don't know how many of you know Father Apple. Paul Apple's a buddy of mine. He's a police chaplain too, and he just cracks me up. But he looks like a medieval monk. He's built like it. I expect to see him in a brown robe and the rope tied around him and walking along a road somewhere. He's a, but he's an incredible person. And he showed me a picture from an Irish church. I wish I would have had him send me the picture, but it's from an Irish church. And it says, it's a, it's a sign on a confession booth. And here's what it says. There's only one priest available for confession today. Make your confession direct to the point and confess only your sins and offenses. No need to explain why you did it. Others will confess their own sins. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, in this phase, we admit that we are our primary problem. It's us and how we react to people. We stop blaming other people for our stuff. We stop expecting others to bail us out. Some of you know it like this. I admit I am powerless over my situation <laughs> and that my life has become unmanageable. Listen, until you come to that point in your life where you can confess that, there is no possibility of a major positive change in your life. This is the breakthrough. I confess I am my biggest problem. <laughs> I am. Now watch this. Genesis 32, 27. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Now this is a strange request. Do you think God, who's apparently wrestling with Jacob in male form, do you think God just walks around at night looking for people to wrestle with. God knew who he was wrestling with. He sought him out. Why is he asking Jacob his name? Not because God doesn't know who he is, but because Jacob needed to own up to who Jacob was. See, in many ancient cultures, you get a nickname when you were born, and when you're about 10, 11, 12, 13, something like that, then they would give you a name that reflected your character. Us, oh no, baby's born, you know, two minutes after the baby's born. I mean, we've already got names picked out. Some names look like they just took a box of the boggle things and slapped them down and grabbed the first five letters, you know, whether they had vowels or not. That's not how it was done. You were given a name that reflected something about you. It could be informative or it could have been a warning. But that was how it was done in old cultures. That's why it was so normal. You read a bunch of fairy tales and you see names like Dopey, Doc, <laughs> Bashful, Sneezy, Happy, Grumpy, Sleepy, right? Wasn't just something that sounded nice. It was something that informed about you. It represented you. Jacob's name literally meant 
heal. That's what it meant, heal. It's referencing back to when that one arm came out of the birth canal hanging on to his brother, <laughs> hanging on to his heel, hanging on to his ankle. So when he says, my name is Jacob, he has lived up to that name of heel, that name of someone who grabs on, someone who tries to usurp a place, someone who tries to stop others from going ahead. He lied to his blind dad. He cheated his brother. He manipulated his father-in-law. He later used his wives to try to manipulate his brother. When he says, my name is Jacob in his own language, he's owning up to what he was. I am always competing. I am always cheating challenging the confession of who he was was necessary to change the rest of the direction of his life forever listen if you were called today by your greatest fall what would your name be what would your name be if you were called by what people knew you to be what would it be i can assure you most of you it'll be worse than you thought Right, because we always underestimate our own problems. Listen, we'll never be able to openly and authentically confess our sins, confess our character defects to ourselves, to God, or to others unless we realize I got to deal with some reality here. You're thinking, wait, okay, I'm with you two thirds of the way. I can confess my problems to me. I can confess my problems to God, but this confess my stuff to another human being? Or, or, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that. Yet God says, confessing our sins to someone who has skin on them, someone who can look us in the eye, pupil to pupil, and say, uh, elaborate on that. Unless we can do that, it's going to be impossible to get the problem fixed. Look at James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be what? Healed. Do you want to have this problem healed? Do you want to have it fixed? you want to have it dealt with? You've got to confess your sins to each other so that other people can pray for you and you can pray for them. James 4.6. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. And it requires extreme humility to confess your sins to someone who, someone you can see. <laughs> someone you can watch their expressions. Someone who can look you in the eye. See, the point of confessing to others is that if you're too proud to confess your sins to others, God cannot give you the grace you need to make the change you need to make. That's the reality of it. You continue to be at war against God's authority. And God opposes people who resist his authority. But he gives grace to who? The cooperative. The humble. Now what's grace? Grace is that power to change. I mean, one of the most humbling things in the world is to sit across from someone and say, this is who I am. I am a liar. I am a worrier. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a thief. I'm a gossip. I'm one who creates conflict and then runs from it and acts like I didn't do it. <clears throat> I'm an addict. You own it. And when you come to God and you say to God, God, I own up to the truth. I am a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a gossip. I'm whatever. 
can I just tell you, you're never going to come and tell, you're never going to come confess a sin to God where God is going to be sitting there going, what? Boy, I didn't see that coming. No, God already knows all that. He wants to see you acknowledge it out loud so that you know it. All right, number four. So the conversion phase comes. So in conversion, you are given a new identity. And we, Travis and I saw this uh, in India. We met a lot of pastors who had, they were born Hindi in India. They're born Hindi. Uh, and when they become Christ followers, they take on the name of some character from Scripture. So, you know, if you're in India, you're going to meet, if you're among believers, if they have a name you know from the Bible, they're probably pretty high probability they're a believer. So we met tons of Daniels, Jonas, Moseses, you know. Um, I'm, there are just so many of them. It's just, it's really cool. But that's part of, they've taken on a new identity because of their conversion now. So watch God's response to Jacob's confession about who he is. Genesis 32. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but what? Israel. That's where it comes from. This is the guy that had all the kids that became the tribes. All these kids he had became the tribes of Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Now, there are some signs when you're in this conversion phase. You say, well, I think I'm in a conversion. I think I'm already converted. I think I've already, already done that. Okay, let's question that for just a minute. In a conversion phase, there are signs of new life. When a transformation begins, three things happen. One, we've, we've said this, I get a brand new identity. So God said, your name's been Jacob, the challenger, the competitor, that's the old you. Your name is now Israel, and Israel means a prince with God. You used to be Jacob, but now you are a prince with God. You are a child of God. Watch this from 1 Corinthians 6. This has one of my favorite phrases from all of Scripture in it. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now watch this. Here's my phrase I love. And that is what some of you, what? circle the word were. That's what some of you were. You were like that. But you have acknowledged the authority of God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. God would say to many of you, listen, beneath all your hang-ups, I still see a princess. I still see a prince. Beneath all the sins, beneath all the garbage in your past, I still see a child of the king. You can be who I made you to be. Just work with me. Just cooperate. Let me change your identity. All right, second thing. I'm blessed when I confess. It says, verse 29, after he said who he was, then he blessed him there. Listen, if you want God's blessing in your life, you've got to own who you are and you've got to confess your broken identity and God will meet you right there, not to be judgmental, not to beat on you, not to guilt trip you, but to bless you. 
Number three, I'm given a reminder. I'm given a reminder. So Jacob, who's now known as Israel, is given a reminder of this meeting with God so that he won't ever forget the experience. God gave him a limp. God gave him a limp. You know what limps do? Limps remind us we're mortal. <laughs> Have you ever seen anybody with a walker? I like to yell at Tom when he comes by real fast. I always yell at him, slow down. I yell at Preston too. Preston comes by really quick in a wheelchair. And I'm like, slow down, slow down. That's a reminder. We're dependent. We've had an experience. We're dependent. And for the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp as a reminder that he met God. Listen, when you really meet God, God changes, metaphorically, the walk of your life. He changes how you do things. Think about this. Many people, they met Jesus. They saw miracles. Maybe they were even the subject of his miracles. Maybe they even did one of the, the famous Jesus pop-up restaurants with fish and bread. <laughs> Maybe they had some of that Long John's or be Long Jesus Silvers. I don't know what they would call them. <clears throat> but they never allowed their lives to be changed because they never followed Jesus beyond what they thought they could get out of him. If you say I'm a Christ follower and your life hasn't changed a bit, can I just tell you, I don't care what prayer you've prayed, I don't care how many times you've been dunked in the tank, you're not following Christ. You cannot meet God and not have change become a part of your life. All right, B, the reminder of the new walk. A little more detail on this. What's the significance of Jacob's limp? Two things, I think. One, it's a reminder to stop running. I mean, this has been Jacob's whole life was constantly creating trouble and then beaten feet <laughs> and then gone. God said, you know what? One of your problems is you never have to deal with your messes because <laughs> you run away. I know how to fix that. And he gave him a limp. He made it so he could never run again. It's never God's will for you to run from your problem. He wants you to stand and face it with hum humility so that he can give you the grace to get through it. Second thing. It's a reminder to depend upon God. It's a reminder to depend upon God. You know, your thigh muscle, that's the strongest muscle in your body. Or in my house growing up, that was referred to as the seed of knowledge. Uh, parents would occasionally apply the board of education to the seed of knowledge, if you know what I mean. So God touches Jacob in the strongest part of his body because he ran away from everything and made a weakness out of it. So from that point on, Jacob would literally have to stand where he was in God's power, not run away in his own. J Jacob leaves this situation stronger and weaker, stronger in character, weaker physically because now he depends on God. So this may be the most important thing I say to you today. God does his deepest work in your life when he deals with your identity. Who you are, the way you see yourself, your self-perception, 
That is why Satan works so hard to tell you you are someone or something you are not. Even if the culture affirms that foolishness. God wants to deal with who he made you to be. The way you see yourself affects everything else in your life. You will always act in accordance with how you see yourself. So God does his deepest change by changing your self-perception. He says, I want you to look at yourself through my eyes. I want you to see what I see when I look at you. And it's through his eyes of grace, his eyes of unconditional love, of unmerited grace, that you begin to see who you are and act in a whole new way. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a what? Circle the word new. A new person. The old life is gone. A what? Circle the word new. Again, a new life has begun. The question is, have you been living the new life? Are you willing to live that new life? Now close your list in God's, put your pencils down. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me for just a minute. I want to ask you four very personal questions. You don't answer them out loud. And they're in your notes so you can look at them again and think through more deeply on your answers this week. You have a quiet time this week. Sit down, pull this out, and look. In what areas are you struggling with God's authority? where you know the holy thing to do, but you keep, you keep ignoring God. You know what you ought to do, but you just refuse to obey and comply. Listen, stop being afraid of letting God control your life. In what areas have you felt like giving up? Right now, it might seem it's easier to walk away from your job. It may seem it's easier to walk away from your marriage. It may seem it's easier to walk away from some other relationship. But you better ask God first. Give it to God and seek help from other believers as you confess your sin with humility. What do you need to admit about yourself? Or, you know, when are you going to face the truth about you? I am a, insert whatever it is there, fill in the blank. When are you going to have the courage to share that with other people so that you can be healed? Revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. You need to share it with someone else. And the last question is, will you let Christ give you a new identity? I mean, God knows underneath all your emotional hang-ups, Beneath all the damage and dents you've got, beneath all the baggage, there is a prince or a princess. There is a child of the king waiting to be revealed. He sees your potential. He sees your potential. And you do not have to stay the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us and thank you for your mercy. Father, we thank you for your patience because for us sometimes it's two steps forward and a step back backward and it's one step forward and two steps backward because we, we just haven't learned to see ourselves the way you see us. We still listen to the old us instead of the new us that you created. Father, I thank you that Paul talked about that and Paul said the things I want to do are the things I don't do and the things I say I'm never doing that again seem to be the only things I ever do. 
Father, help us to grow through that. Help us to become who you made us to be. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for your patience. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.